to invite you to turn within your Bibles or follow along on the screen. Um, we're going to be we're going to be looking at First Corinthians chapter ten, verse fourteen to twenty-two. First Corinthians ten fourteen to twenty-two. We read, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is, not a, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we are all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are they not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And so this is the text that we're going to be considering this morning together. And Paul is going to be talking about ritual. And the word ritual is more a part of our life than we probably even realize. Do you have any rituals in your life? Think about uh, your daily routines. Do you have a morning ritual? <laughs> Do you have an evening ritual? Now, I have a boy who will remain nameless this morning who has an evening ritual that is long and protracted. And it seems as though it would take 15 minutes to go through all of the steps to get into the covers. But we all have rituals. And uh, there's uh, a significance to them. They become matters of efficiency. If you're not familiar with the idea of ritual, it's defined as a series of actions or type of behavior regularly and invariably followed by somebody. Now, a ritual can be very mindless. It can become empty. It can become not full of thought. And that's typically how we use that word when we, we would say, oh, that's just, a, just an empty ritual. That's, just a, that's ritualistic. And that tends to be the kind of idea that we're carrying. But rituals are designed to serve a purpose, particularly those of a religious nature, Religious rituals do at least three things, and Paul is really, funny enough, going to talk about and allude to these three things in this text. So it's kind of helpful for us to understand uh, ritual and what it does. Three things that rituals do, the first is that it creates weight. It creates a sense of importance. Um, Ceremony is designed to set apart an activity as being special. 
Um, think about some of the ceremonies that you have observed in your lifetime. There's a kind of a formula of you start with this, and then you do this, and then you do this. Um, have you ever witnessed a flag presentation ceremony at a funeral? I don't know how these got, well, they must do it fairly frequently to remember how to unfold that flag, and they have all the just different protocols, and then they hand it off to the deceased uh, spouse. But we all look at that, and it kind of, there's a heightened weight to it in that ritual. There's something else that uh, ritual does. It also, particularly if, if there's a group of people participating in the ritual, what it does is it creates a community, a sense of community. A prescribed order that we all participate in makes us all partakers of the same thing. Now, this is heightened particularly um, when you go and you visit a new church that you have never been a part of before. I personally get anxious thinking about going to visit a church I've never been at before. Does that sound weird to you? Because everybody knows the ritual. I don't know it. But a ritual, though, if I were to participate in the life of that congregation that knows the ritual, pretty quickly I would have a sense of community that I belong here because I'm familiar with what everyone is doing. And so rituals have a value because it creates a weight, a sense of importance, and it also kind of builds a community and focus. And the third thing that rituals do is it channels affections, particularly in religious context. And so there's a focal point of of observation, and the ritual particularly takes away, if there's movement in it, takes away from ourselves bodily and actually gets our hearts to focus on something in particular. Now, I know this is not, this is kind of a cheesy illustration, but when you brush your teeth, um, how efficient would it be for you to think about every brush stroke? You know, it would be a lot of wasted brain power, right? Now, I've got to go back, and I've got to go forth, back, forth, back, forth, back. You know, you don't even think about how you brush your teeth now. There's a little danger in that, but what there it does is it creates an efficiency, takes away the bodily function so that your heart can actually move towards something that's really important. Now, that's, in some rituals, that's part of it, but the idea is that we're channeling and focusing our affections on an object that we consider to be weighty and of importance and that's shared with community. That's what ritual is intended to do. So, this morning we're thinking about ritual, which promotes the worship of idols. Paul's very concerned that people are putting themselves into a participatory uh, connection through ritual by going into these idol temples. So, in verse 14, he says, therefore, my beloved flee from idolatry. Flee from the worship of idols. That's literally what idolatry means, from the worship, the placing of your affections on idols. And Paul is um, thinking about ritual and trying to get us to avoid those kinds of rituals. And Paul's also cognizant. Now, we're in a flow of thought here in 1 Corinthians. We've 
noted last Sunday, if you were with us, that Paul was highlighting that we all have a sin nature. We have a sin nature inside of us that has affections going in different directions, away from God. And so, Paul is saying that you and your human nature have a tendency to worship something other than God. You have a tendency to manufacture idols of your imagination, thinking that they can fulfill your heart's deepest longings. One theologian described our human condition this way. He said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. The human mind, filled with pride, dares to imagine God suited to its own desires. The God whom man has thus conceived, inwardly he attempts to worship outwardly. The mind, in this way, conceives the idol, and the hand gives it birth. So, the desire inside of us is critical to be focused on the correct object of worship. Otherwise, we are worshiping false gods, things that won't bring us into a place of harmony with God Himself. And so, these idols can be anything. Like we, you know, I had a picture, there's a picture right there on the screen of, of, a, of, of a, wood, a stone object that tends to be what we think about when we think about an idol. But the reality is, if you have a passion for beauty, and that becomes your goal, you may actually in your heart could, if you lived in the first century, worship Aphrodite, a goddess that's dedicated for the pursuit of beauty. Or, if you are in the 21st century, you could follow her on Instagram. Be honest. And you start to model and become what you are beholding, and your heart starts chasing. Now, Paul has a very strong therefore in verse 14. He says, therefore, because of what I've already said, flee adultery. And what he had already said was, look, it's a dangerous place to intentionally go into idolatry. There's going to be temptation throughout your life. God's going to rescue from those everyday common to man temptations, but if you plug your ears and close your eyes and run headlong into that which God prohibits, beware. You're testing and tempting God in His patience. And so now here in this text, he's kind of coming to a kind of a crescendo of conclusion, and he's saying, it's important for you to flee from rituals which draw your affections towards idols. And he appeals to our sensibilities. He, he, he doesn't, you know, he wants to make sure that we, he understand, or we understand that he doesn't think that we're children or babies. And this is what he says in verse 15, I appeal to you as sensible people. I mean, 
you can judge for yourself what I'm saying and draw the necessary conclusion to what I'm saying. And so, he begins to show us the nature of Christian ritual, and then he compares it to pagan ritual, and then he shows us that these things don't go together. And then he says, look, you need to get out of this and don't consider lightly the fact that God loves you so much that He's jealous for you and He won't let you stay there. Are you stronger than Him? And so He's saying here, you need to flee from these, these pagan rituals which are trying to pull your affections away from God. And there's dr- dramatic applicability for us here in the 21st century. But let's think and break this down. In the first, first segment, verses 16 to 18... Paul is talking about the nature of Christian ritual. Christian worship has rituals. We, we design our services to, to have a weight to them and to build community. And, and there's a sense in which we, 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 we stand up at certain points in a worship service, right? We sit down, we pass the plate, we, we focus on a scripture reading, we hear the word preached, we hear somebody pray. These are all designed for a purpose to think carefully about the reality of God, the reality of the one that this world says doesn't exist. We're designed a service to kind of incorporate in our hearts the weight of who God is and build community and channel our affections to Him. So in verse 16, he describes the, he, he describes in verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation with the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And he's, he's creating a sense of weight here. He's saying, look at this ritual that you do. This is not an empty ritual. This is participation spiritually, not literally, but spiritually with the God of heaven. The one who descended was the incarnate son who was crucified and rose again. This is participation with true spiritual reality. And this is designed to heighten the weight. It, he's, the, the word that he uses there, is, uh, participation, is an important word. It describes a vertical relationship that we would have with God. That's weight. These rituals that we do demonstrate that. Verse 17, he goes on with his argument and says, look, this also constructs community with one another. Verse 17, he talks about symbolically the solidarity that these elements in a communion service Represent verse 17. He says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, I have considered, I would have to practice this for sure, but maybe restructuring how we do communion. Now, again, it's a ritual, it's something that we've done habitually in a certain setting, to try to focus our attention and affections on Him. But I think that we also potentially miss by having the cracker, the, the, the unleavened uh, uh, wheat there, pre-broken. 
it would be really maybe beneficial if, as I was standing there, helped you observe the fact that we are all many people, but yet we are constituted in the body of Christ by breaking that right in front of you. Some churches will do that with a full loaf of bread. They will, perhaps the pastor will break it into two pieces and then, and then the people who serve it will carry it out and they'll take little pieces off of it down the row. I know why we do it this way because we all have a sensitivity towards germs. But we lose something of the picture. And Paul is saying that this ritual is designed to help you understand that you have a vertical relationship with God. There is weight to that there is also a community that is designed here, and we're doing this together. And then thirdly, in verse 18, he describes how uh, this is all designed to channel our affections to him, to God. Now, in verse 18, he alludes to the people of Israel and the rituals that they carried out, In verse 18, he says, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. This is a little bit of a reference, and maybe you would want to read this section of verses this afternoon, but Deuteronomy 14, Paul is referring to how Israel was instructed every year to lay aside their tithe to lay aside their offering. And when they travel annually down to the feast in Jerusalem, they were to give their gift to the, to the temple. It would be sacrificed. They would be able to eat a portion there at the temple and rejoice in that relationship that they have with God who blessed them. This is very significant. In fact, um, I'm just going to read one verse from Deuteronomy 14 in which it says that, so, so some people who are having to travel long distance may have had to convert their, their livestock into money and take that money down into Jerusalem and then purchase something then there to, to gift to the Lord. And so what is said here is really significant. It says, but when they got to Jerusalem, they were to spend the money for whatever you desire Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God. And get this next phrase. And rejoice, you and your household. And so this is all designed to draw our affections towards God in building community and excitement over worship of the true and living God. So Paul is saying, look, this has all been carefully designed for this purpose. We know that the ancient church um, would typically have a communion service, somewhat like we would have, but actually they would do it during a fellowship meal. They would do it um, like we have a fellowship meal over in the fellowship hall. In fact, that would be the place where they would celebrate the Last Supper together. Because they would be rejoicing collectively and thinking meditatively about the relationship horizontally and also vertically. And that's how they did it. Now, of course, we don't actually do it that way today. But maybe we should on occasion do it that way. But Paul here is 
trying to show, look, you as a Christian have rituals that are designed to give weight to who God is, the true and living God. Show your community and developing community and also moving your affections towards Him. Now, in verse 19 to 20, he now says, look, don't be deceived. These pagans also have rituals designed to do the same thing. And in verse 19, we read, what do I imply then? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything. No, but I do imply what Pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. And so, Paul is saying, look, there's a similar purpose. The deity has a sense of weight and the meat is sacrificed, but those aren't the main concern. And some people were saying, well, I can't eat any meat whatsoever that's been sacrificed to these gods because therefore... You know, maybe I'm giving recognition to the reality of these gods. And, and Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying even that uh, uh, this deity has any reality whatsoever. But he's saying what is happening, though, is, is that your affections potentially can be drawn away from the true and living God. And this is what pagan ritual is designed to do. Now, last Sunday, Eric shared an email from a man who came to Christ who recently was saved out of pagan rituals, the pagan rituals of the Himalaya Institutes. And for purpose of illustration, I want to share another email, pieces of it, that he shared with me of his personal testimony. And I want you to listen carefully. Listen for how he talks about these rituals developing a sense of weight, of community, and then the drawing away of his affections. He writes, Hi, John. I thought I would write some of my testimony to you, though I'm probably going to write a book about it. I got into yoga at age 14, by one of the guru's main students, who he recently made a pundit. It's a Hindu priest. And that, there's a certain weight, there's a certain community there. Do you see the community outreach? There's a certain weight here. I met the guru when I was a sophomore in high school and got mantra initiation at age 16. I meditated intensely and was invited to live at the institute for one year after high school. The guru and his assistant were like fathers to me. I went away to college for three years and then returned to the institute to become a pundit. See the constructive community that's going on here? I had been practicing Sri Vijaya mantras from age 19 as it's taught that they are the most secret, revealed, divine, purifying mantras. I had depression most of my life and wanted to permanently destroy it by attaining enlightenment through mantra meditation. From age 15, I was taught that Jesus did mantra meditation in Benares, India. 
and in a cave in Kashmir, which is how he attained his status as the Son of God. We did not believe that he was the only one. I thought that the Bible was barbaric and canonized, canonized misinterpretation. My aim was not to be pagan, and yet I, I mocked witchcraft as I thought they were trying to imitate the true revealed path of Sri Vidya. I thought I was on Christ's path. I not only struggled with depression, but after seven years of marriage, realized that I had a very promiscuous mind. I figured everyone did, and I just kept doing my mantras, and one day I would be purified of it. I struggled to not cheat on my amazingly beautiful wife, although I never was immoral with anyone else over the few years that I had to fight it. So I did more mantras to purify my heart. But the last two years, there were more temptations, stronger drive, intense insecurity, and for the first time was beginning to occasionally look at porn, which I never was never big on. Last Sunday, or last June, excuse me, my heart began to feel like it had a three-inch vertical stinging cut in it and was on fire. It was hard to breathe and felt desperately dependent on validation from women. I was taking Xanax and increased my Lexapro, but the heart pain was still intense. I stopped my mantras for about four days as I was exhausted of prayer. I felt like I was going crazy, and the morning of September 6, I said out loud, Jesus, please help me. I got my twins ready for school and dropped them off, and then I began crying and felt an intense need to be with Christians. Say the community. I called my friend who was 82 and said I needed to come over. And while I was driving, the Switchfoot song, Never Let You Go, was playing, and it felt like he was singing right to me. As I was at my friend's apartment asking questions about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it felt like someone rubbed a cut cream and burn cream into my heart, and the stinging feeling stopped and the burning stopped. His, his affections are starting to be refocused and rechanneled. The next day, I felt an intense drive to throw all my scriptures, Hindu pictures, statutes, prayer beads, and I burned my prayer shawl and pillow. After about four days, my head got clear, and I felt joy, clear, peaceful joy. With no desire to look at women, my drive was at peace. I felt whole inside and still do. But also, the words of the Bible that used to sound stupid sounded true. It's as if Jesus infused belief into me and singed out my rebellious doubt. Mantras that used to flow in my mind were gone and I could not recall them. It feels like generational issues were cleaned out and I truly feel those mantras filled me and all its practitioners with demonic energy. I feel almost bodiless. I'm so light, happy, and clear. That's quite a testimony. Praise God that God rescued him. And praise God that he rescues all of us. But the nature, did you, the nature of pagan ritual though is designed to draw your affections away from the one who can really bring you all that you need. And so Paul here, and I, and I use this as an illustration, that Paul is saying, look, are these things really anything? No, they're not. 
But if they're drawing you away from Christ, then be sure that the dark prince of this world is using them to his advantage. And so now in verse 21, Paul says, look, it is a natural mixture for Christians to participate with pagan ritualism. Now, in verse 21, we read, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, these words are not just a warning, but they're also an explicit command that Christians who follow the true and living God should not align themselves and participate in pagan rituals which will draw them away from Christ. In other words, he was saying, like, going to the temple with friends was not just eating with friends. It's spiritual warfare. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time that I ate in a pagan temple. But there are close comparisons in the world in which we live. And yoga, I think, is something that we have to be very careful with. And now, yoga might not be your thing, but if it is, you ought to be very careful. It may be very innocent on the basic level, but if your instructors begin to introduce mantras that you don't even understand what they mean, you may be potentially participating in a worship that is alien to God and the true and living God. You have to be careful. I'm not saying that all exercise routines are wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to live with wisdom to see what you're participating in. But that would be just too easy for me to stop and finish my application there. The human heart, as I said at the beginning, and Paul gave recognition last Sunday, it's an idol factory. Our heart's desires go away from God and we manufacture things in place of Him. James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We live in a culture that is dedicated to consumerism. We worship stuff because it does something for us. Modern, modern marketing uses ritual to draw our affections away from Christ. Now, you think about this for a moment, and then you can call me crazy later. Now, I, I hate the mall. But what does the mall look like, folks? It looks like a Gothic temple dedicated to the imagination of human desire. You know, marketing is described in evangelical terms these days. It's used frequently to try to communicate to people that... Um, <laughs> I, 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 every time I see this, I just want to just, just throw up. Conversions. 
as an evangelical concept of people being changed from light to darkness. That's been traditionally an evangelical term. It's now used in marketing to describe people moving into your field and into your camp and into your marketing group. People are advertised to on the basis of joining a community of like-minded souls for the purpose of mutual relationship. Now, some of that's certainly innocent, but it's, it's everywhere. And it's so easy to be caught up. And uh, just for example, a few years ago, the car maker Saturn, the GM car Saturn, had a commercial in which there was this description of a weekend homecoming. And there's this guy who's, you know, talking about like, um, you know, the voiceover was like kind of a Motel 6 commercial voice, just kind of back home, kind of everyone's getting together for this event that's taking place in Tennessee. And, um, you know, it, <laughs> advertising a communal way of life that if you are a car buyer, you're buying into this community. It's focuses on drawing your heart in a certain direction. You know what the result of that advertising scheme did for that little small town of Tennessee? They had 45,000 Saturns show up. 45,000 Saturns, people who owned a Saturn, and they were also trying to live out the vision of what that looked like. Their affections were being pulled, and there was all a ritual get-together, like a, like a revival meeting. I mean, this, is, this happens all the, all, the to- all the time. I mean, I know that car things may not pull your heartstrings, but you think, look through every commercial marketing technique, and it will be selling you a story of where you would like to live, what kind of world you want to live in. I mean, consider like just a very simple advertisement for a paper plate. A paper plate. Cheery, bright, uplifting hostess, surrounded by family and friends, lots of food. And she holds up a plate, and on that plate are these words that are elegantly written. And there's this beautiful uh, soundtrack in the background. And there's a voice over that says... What are you saying with your paper plates? Because on her plates, she has words like friends, tradition, confidence, you're special. So that if you use just plain, flimsy plates, what does that say about who you are? Do you see what it just did? It invited you into a world of Desire. I don't want to be the hostess that's not the mostess. But this is everywhere because they're smarter than Christians. If you can get the affection, then the body and the money pocket will go with it. And yet we go head and over heels as ourselves as Christians. Consumer products, health foods, vacation destinations, all promise what our broken hearts desire. 
there's nothing wrong with those desires, but the reality is they're not going to be fulfilled in this world, but in the world to come. And Christ is the greatest fulfiller of desire. Paul is saying, look, you need to flee from rituals which draw your affections away from Christ. And in verse 22, he says that there is a supernatural jealousy of God. Everything else has been somewhat natural, but now there's this supernatural jealousy of God that you have to contend with if you keep going down this road. Verse 22, he says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Now, the word jealousy and having it linked to Jesus or to God might sound really strange to you because typically when we talk about jealousy, we talk about it as a sinful act, right? But when it is applied to a holy God, it is absolutely appropriate. Think about it in terms of marriage. If your spouse was flirting with someone other than you, how would you feel? You would feel jealous and rightly so. Because you don't own yourself, you're owned by the other person. And likewise, that person who's flirting with that other person, what is she doing? That's her, her attention supposed to be towards me. It's appropriate. And likewise, I give my affections to her. And it's not inappropriate for God to demand our affections because He is the true God. There's no other besides Him. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says. And that's why He commands in the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He has that right to ask it of you. He has that right to ask it of me. And it's not selfish of God because he knows at the end of the day that's where you will find your most fulfillment. It's actually loving of God to require it of you. Are we stronger than him? <laughs> no. We're not stronger than Him. In other words, if you follow your heart's desires into loving stuff, vacations, work, immorality, family other than God, then what we are doing, we're like Israel. We're testing the true God and saying, I don't believe that you will actually do what you say you will do. I don't actually believe that you will discipline me as a son or daughter. God does discipline sons and daughters, and he will not let go those whom he has affection upon. That's the beautiful promise of this. Why test the Lord when he promises the world to you? Why test the Lord? Positively, though, you know, we need to think, what kinds of Christian ritual ought we to be participating in? What can help me lift the vision of who God is to a higher level? 
how will it carry weight? There are things that you can do. You can ritualize time with Him. You can spend time in a prayer closet. Prayer closet. That's designed to move your affections away from this world into Him. You can open the Word of God and read a little bit each day. You can form a ritual for the purpose of not meriting favor with Him, but to love Him and to move your heart towards Him. You can ritualize blessing one another and serving one another as a way of life. All of these things are designed as spiritual disciplines to create weight and sense of who God is, build community, you know, prioritizing the worship of the Lord on a Sunday, builds into your life a sense that God is great and this world is not. Do you have rituals in your daily life? I know that's actually a yes question because we all do. I know we all have to get up. We have to beat that temptation to hit the snooze button. I mean, it might be our ritual that we hit it at least once, twice, three. But that's a ritual. What if you substituted a Christian ritual in that 20 minutes, which was opening the Word of God and spending a few minutes ritualizing your focus in the morning for Him? Think about what that could do for this community. Think about how your heart may move away from other desires that you sense that you fight with. That's replacing of desires. You have to examine your heart from time to time. Do you fight? Do you have a sense of community elsewhere other than the body of Christ? It doesn't mean that you can't have friendships and associations in this world. We've got to be in the world. There's no question we need to be in the world. But does that seem greater to you than with the family of God? Why is that? Are your dreams for the good life greater in your mind than your dreams for the good life that's found only in Christ? Paul says we're in a spiritual warfare. Paul orders his life for the purpose of getting the gospel out. He does things that maybe you and I might feel a little bit uneasy about. But the reality is he doesn't allow anything that he does to control him. He, he organizes his life for the purpose of getting the gospel out. And he wants all followers, he wants us even here in the 21st century to flee from those rituals which draw our affections away from Christ. Let us pray that in the coming months that we will be a people that are ritualizing ourselves to Christ. Let's pray.